Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to Guitar Nerds Live, the live podcast that's about guitars and stuff. Um, I'm your host for the evening, uh, Mark Packham, joined by Jay Cross. Hi, Mark. Hello and there. people in chat. For those of you that have not heard one of the live podcasts before, we're recording this live on our Discord server, um, and you can join that if you want to. If you're listening to this uh, after it's been recorded, you can join the Discord server by joining our Patreon, patreoncom forward slash nerds um, and anywhere from the one dollar tier and up, you get access to the private Discord server, and you can listen to listen to us record this live. You can join in. You'll hear through the show. Hopefully, we get some people on the line to um, to share their thoughts. If not, we're just taking text from the uh, from the live chat um and we should have a you know a jolly good time all around so um what are we talking about tonight on this guitarna's live we are talking about a topic jay that you raised a couple weeks ago yeah so um an article that i saw on music radar uh maybe two weeks ago or so uh about francis rossi uh from of course as if francis rossi needs any introduction but francis rossi of status quo <laughs> Uh, is selling his Telecaster. Now, yeah. the uh, the Francis Rossi Tele is something that we've spoken about on the podcast many times. Uh, but for people who don't know, it's an absolutely quality late 50s um, Ron Seal green Tele uh, with a, uh, a, a couple of extra holes dug all the way through it. Um, and he is very famous, states quo, very famous for playing telecasters. This, this is something that might not, um, might not translate to listeners outside of the United Kingdom because, uh, when, uh, when Maddie, my girlfriend moved to the UK from the US about five years ago, she had never heard of status quo. And that completely blew my mind because they're just like a British institution when it comes to rock and roll music. It's like woven into the fabric of British life. It's like, yeah, if you didn't, if you don't know about the live performance of rocking all over the world from Live Aid, then, you know, are you really British? Oh, exactly. And in fact, uh, the, her first introduction to status quo was going to the football and hearing people singing football chants to the tune of status quo songs right. and not realizing that it was 
you know, actual music. Um, so anyway, as I say, Status Quo, really well known for uh, their telecasters. And Francis Rossi has played this green telly seemingly forever. And uh, the article gives a bit of a history on it. Um, basically, he bought it. So it's a 1957 telly that he bought in 1968. So it was already, you know, 10 years old or so. Uh, and, you know, presumably you buy a guitar that's 10 years old. You're like, yeah, I mean, whatever. It's just a piece of junk, in it? It doesn't really matter what, what I do with it. And obviously 50 years later, with a load of hindsight, that guitar would have been, if it had been kept in pristine nick, that guitar would be worth, you know, unbelievable sums of money. Um, I mean, it still is because Francis Rossi played it for a really long time. But what uh what this kind of spurred me into thinking of is having uh this guitar been played for 50 years and status quo being an extremely prolific live touring band um are there any other guitars that have been played as ma- as many times live as francis rossi's telly so as i said i've i've run the numbers and uh, with the help of um, a little bit of sort of guesswork and also this really cool website, setlist.fm, which is a website where you can submit set lists from gigs that you've been to and uh, it will tell you how many times your favourite bands have played songs that, you know, their songs, which I think actually is very cool. Uh, I'm all about sort of cataloging things in that in that uh in that style so um using a bit of back and forth with and a bit of guesswork uh francis rossi bought this guitar in 1968 and he retired it in 2015 now assuming that he played every single show with it in between 1968 and 2015 that means this guitar has done 3500 gigs that's a lot I feel like that's quite a lot. And as I say, I was trying to work out if there's anything that comes close to or, you know, has done more than that. Because three and a half thousand gigs, I don't think I've done anything three and a half thousand times. Like, Um, that's crazy. Yeah, that's a lot of gigs. Keep keep it clean, whatever you're about to say. Keep it clean. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. There's a fair few things that, you know, that have probably done three and a half thousand times. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, that is a lot of gigs. So you've also gone through and done some maths on other people's stuff. I mean, bear in mind, we are assuming in this that he's played that guitar for every gig. Which, from what I gather, he did. I mean, yeah, sure, maybe there was a few here and there. But, I, you know, even at three and a half thousand, I think we can expect a, uh, you know, even if there's a margin of error of 10%, he's probably still higher than most other people would ever come close to. I'm just doing a quick Google search, like a Google image search that to just see, like, are there any photos of him live with any other guitar? And I'm scrolling down now. I've probably looked at... I don't know, maybe 200 images so far. And I can't find a picture of him playing another guitar live. There's one where he's got like, he's like sat on a sofa. He's obviously doing like a session or something. And he's got like a butterscotch telly. But every live picture that I can find, uh, he's got the green telly. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is possible that uh that you know he played one of the replicas because there was again as we've talked about on the podcast before there there was a run of fender japan were they yeah yeah they were yeah but there wasn't many was there so you know it's it's 
I think it's fair to assume that he probably had a couple of those. So maybe he used one of those for a while. But um, yeah, I, I think it's likely that he used that more than anything else. So anyway, we uh, kind of put out into the chat, you know, is there anything else? And we did a bit of research and I actually found a article and I reckon this article is probably uh, also influenced by... Uh, this music radar article so there's an article on ultimate guitar which said uh, which is from five days ago which is uh six legendary guitars still in use and so these right. are guitars uh that are like iconic guitars owned by iconic guitar players that they've used for a really long time and some of the ones that are on here are um brian may's red special uh yep. jimmy page and his gibson les paul number one uh Bonnie Riot and uh, her brownie strat. Uh, Bonnie Wright. Bonnie Wright, sorry. What did I say? Yeah. Bonnie Riot, which is oh, like sorry. punk for punk covers band. <laughs> sorry. Bonnie Wright and uh, Keith Richards and his uh, telly, of course. And a uh, guitar that uh, is extremely close to the hearts of guitarists, as we talk about this all the time. Bruce Springsteen's telly or Esquire, depending on how pedantic you're going to be. And uh, another one, which is something that I hadn't really thought about, but that's kind of why I wanted to talk about this on the podcast, is once you get away from kind of punk and rock, I guess, as a whole, um, I, I, I sort of struggle. And I didn't know whether there were any country artists or any metalers out there who, you know, I don't know if, if Tony Iommi had been playing the same SG for, you know, 40 years or whatever um but uh with regards to country artists willie nelson came up on this list as well and apparently he has played his uh martin n20 uh since 1969 so yeah. th there's a few there and uh you know i've got some of the numbers on these i i wonder if there's uh if if you had anything else that you thought maybe would be up there well, the ones that spring to mind, so I'm just looking at Tony Iommi. So looking at photos of him, it does appear that he often uses the same guitar. There are pictures of him from what looks like the 80s where he is playing something else. But, I mean, he is often seen using that kind of the brown guitar, um, which has got, you know, like the crosses on the fretboard and stuff like that. Um so that might be worth running the numbers on. There's also a couple pictures of him with a Strat as well. Um, really? But it, uh, yeah, it does what? mainly see... Three seem... single coils? Uh, yeah, so the story... Well, I'm not sure if that's... I'm trying to find that picture again. I'll just scroll past it. But so the story of that is when they were recording the first Black Sabbath album, and I think I'm getting this story correct. When they're recording the first Black Sabbath album, he had a Strat with him. Um, and obviously being left-handed, you know, there wasn't like an abundance of guitars around. Um, so he had this Strat and they went to record the first album and it in some way it broke. I can't remember what it was. And the only other guitar they could find was the SG. Um, and yeah, so he reluctantly started using the SG on this album. And then that obviously subsequently became kind of like the birth of heavy metal. It would before that, it would have, if that strat hadn't broken, that would have been the sound of Black Sabbath. Is that is very strange. I wonder if they would have turned into, you know, if those songs would have, would have, it would have been uh, like Dire Straits or something rather than yeah, uh, the birth of heavy metal. There is actually a photo of him here. So yeah, he has played other guitars because, uh, so like I said, if you're looking at all of their gigs, by the looks of it, the first gigs would have been, he was playing a Strat. Um, and then in the eighties, there were like, I can't tell the brand, but there's something that's got like a weird, like reverse Firebird headstock on it. Um, right. 
there's a lot of these things where I think what you'll see is that if they've been playing since like the 60s, they played one guitar for ages and in the, in, in the 80s when like endorsements became a big thing, they like go off and play something else. And in fact, one that you didn't mention in your opening spiel that we've talked about in the past is um, Chaz and Dave uh, and, and the bass used by Dave. Um, do you want to talk a bit about that? So there's a uh, there's a really great documentary called Last Orders. So, I mean, you know, Mark and I are unapologetic in our uh, love for Chaz and Dave. And again, this is kind of uh, something that might not have translated to uh, listeners outside of the UK. But Chaz and Dave were uh, session musicians in the 60s played in a bunch of bands like Chaz very famously played uh played bass for Jerry Lee Lewis on a couple of his tours of the UK in the early days and uh uh Gene Vincent as well I think yep. I want to say Vincent. yeah and um Dave originally back in the day was was in was in the Rolling Stones uh not that Rolling Stones a different band called the Rolling Stones uh <laughs> who uh who on one of their early tours were supported by the Beatles um so uh just they've got the, and they went on to be in um Chaz was in this band heads hands heads hands and feet with um Albert Lee and uh, who else was in that? Was Clapton in that? Clapton wasn't in that, was he? Maybe. I know that obviously they were kind of like there was a kind of collective of musicians and Clapton was was one of them, but I don't yeah. know on that particular band. Um, and um, there's a really great documentary called Last Orders, which is all about uh, Chas and Dave's first last tour, uh, which was, I think, in 2000 and 2012, 2013, something like that. Um uh, Dave's wife died, uh, which uh, really hit him for six. And he basically said, like, look, I can't do this anymore. I can't go out on tour. I just need to, like, you know, knock it on the head. And so uh, this documentary is all about them kind of on their last tour and their last London show. And uh, it's got a load of archive footage. And there is a clip where with Dave Peacock with his, um, I think it's a 1969 P-Base, which uh, allegedly he bought new in 1969. And he reckons that, Back then, so, you know, five, ten years ago, whatever, he reckons that that bass has done more gigs than any other instrument in the UK. And, uh, I mean, everyone's got a story about seeing Chaz and Dave down like the dog and duck in, you know, 1994 or something like that. So it really would not surprise me if that bass has played more. But I couldn't find any statistics on how many shows they've played, probably because uh, you'd need a separate internet to list all of the shows that they've played. <laughs> it's too many. It I will break the internet. Yeah, I don't think there's enough space on the internet. Um, but so, set, And also, I'm not sure that uh, Chaz and Dave have quite got the following of some of the bands who uh, have got the dedicated fan base that would list their set lists on setlist.fm uh, because they've only got 124 shows dating from 1976 up to 2018, which I can tell you is definitely incorrect. The other thing about Chaz and Dave uh, and Dave Peacock specifically is firstly, it's an unbroken, it's, sorry, it's a broken run as well, because I know for a long time in the, I think, late 70s and early 80s, he was using Yamaha BB basses. So, um, B basses. Yeah. Uh, BB, yeah, BB basses. Um, BB basses, yeah. BB basses. And he, that's, uh, that would have kind of broken the run of the P bass. But also, one thing to consider with Chaz and Davis, they used to do, from what, as I'm, uh, from what I understand, 
they used to do a fair few gigs where he actually didn't even play bass. They would do like, you know, like cafe gigs and stuff like that, where both of them would play guitar. Because it's worth mentioning. Oh, oh yeah, of course, yeah. Both of them can kind of do everything. You know, I think both of them play the drums. Both of them, obviously, you know, Dave plays bass. Chaz played uh, piano. Yeah. But like, they also they, they also do like, you know, they can all both play like mandolin and like guitar. Um, so if you go through, if you do like a Google image search for them, actually a lot of the pictures... Um, he's not even playing bass. He's playing like a little Spanish acoustic. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's done a lot on ukulele and stuff as well. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it just unbelievable musicians and they sort of don't really get the credit they deserve because, you know, the songs are um, maybe a little bit risque in in, in sort of uh, in 2020 or 2019 terms, um, maybe Some, nowadays. St- some of it hasn't aged well. Some of it hasn't aged well, but the ones that have are just are just absolutely amazing. And because they their lyrics were all a bit funny and they were kind of a caricature of themselves, they don't really get the credit for being the like incredible musicians that they are. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, there's there's a really good clip that you should try and track down. I'll, I'll try and put it in the group at some point of um, a band that was really short lived. I think they did a seven inch and nothing else. And it's uh, Chaz Hodges on piano. Uh, it's Phil Linnett from Thin Lizzy on bass. And uh, uh, um, the geezer from Wizard, whose name... I've, Roy Wood. Roy Wood from Wizard playing guitar, uh, plus a drummer who I can't remember who it was, but again, they were in like a big band. And... Um, there's just this incredible video of them just like playing a gig down like yeah the dog and dark or the queen's head or something um together and it's just amazing like they're just unbelievable musicians and, john um, coughlin is the drummer okay what what was he in uh i was just trying to find that um let me the problem is going through this like i'm looking at Chaz's uh discography right now and there's just too much there's yeah, too yeah, yeah, much yeah. right let me just see if i can quickly Google but, I mean, it, you know, like, like think so. Another thing that they say in, uh, actually, I don't think this is in the documentary, I think it's in, uh, on his Twitter. So, Chaz died a couple of years ago, uh, maybe a year or so ago. Actually, it's coming up to about a year ago and re- like really sad, but he was, he was fantastic and he, um, he had a great Twitter account and he put up not, not long before he died, he put up a picture of his, uh, Hofner president. Is that what that, yeah, I think it was a president. Hofner president, which uh, he bought in like 1950-something and uh, or, ni- or like the early 60s. And he reckons that that was the first electric bass in the UK uh, because he said that basically he bought that bass and everyone wanted to, him to be in their band because everyone else had double basses and double basses were not cool. So, you know, the fact that he had that before anyone else is just incredible. Um, so bringing it all back around to where we started, John Coughlin from the Rockers uh, with Chaz and uh, with uh, Chaz Roy Wood and um, Phil Linnett was the original drummer for Status Quo. Oh, okay, <laughs> there we go, there we go. So another another guitar that I was thinking of, and various iterations of it maybe, and I don't know how we're going to qualify this, but um, Billy Joe Armstrong's Blue Fernandez Strat, I reckon, yeah. has done a lot of gigs. Um, yeah. Now, how you? how you would uh, kind of qualify that. Because obviously, uh, you know, if it, I'm not sure if he's even using the real one anymore. I'm pretty sure he's using a replica. Um, but 
you know, are we doing it by like how many songs it's been used on or literally how many gigs? Because, you know, if you if we're talking about Green Day, obviously that's like one guitar that he uses in a set. It's not like uh, Dave's P bass. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the question was about the question was about gigs. So, you know, I think even if it only comes out to play Basket Case, then I think that's uh, that's probably all right. Still counts. Did we get a um, did we get a gig total for Willie Nelson? Yeah, I did. So I did actually get that. So just going back to, I mean, this is sort of all over the place, but basically Willie Nelson, he bought the guitar in 69. Uh, and the story here is that he had a uh, Baldwin, um, which is a brand I don't really know anything about. I don't know if I should. Uh, but yeah, apparently he had a Baldwin guitar and the Martin N20, which is a, uh, a nylon strung guitar, uh, he bought in, which he calls Trigger um he bought in 1969 and apparently still plays it and uh on his setlist.fm page uh that lists him at 2900 shows since 1969 so a little way off the um francis rossi but i mean that is still some going really really some going and you know i i don't know if there's i mean maybe that's up there with acoustic guitars because I would I would really struggle to think of anyone else, any other acoustic guitar players who've played, you know, for fifty years with I bet I bet you there are multiple um like uh, classical guitar players who have used the same instrument for that amount of time. Yeah, maybe and you're right. Probably done more gigs, I'd imagine. But they're probably not anywhere near as as well known. That's the uh that's the problem. We're trying to track these things down um so just a uh a bit of a, an overview on baldwin so uh just because i like to fill in facts baldwin piano company uh is was an american or is still an american piano brand um okay. they used to i believe make like uh oh no they were yeah oh, it's a complicated history because at one time they were owned by gibson um right. they began in 1857 when Dwight Hamilton Baldwin began teaching piano, organ and violin. So I think probably that would have been like maybe like a catalogue guitar. Um, and down the line, again, the, the kind of history of Baldwin goes all over the place, but they bought Burns at one point. Um, right, okay. And, and then they were they went bankrupt in 2001 and were bought by Gibson. Um it's it, no, 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 no. Oh, okay. That's, That's when they give Gibson. Right, okay. I believe they are now even, yes, they are still a subsidiary of Gibson Guitar Corporation. Right. Okay. Gibson Brands. I think yeah. it is now still. Um, so, right. That, so that puts them right up there. So what did you say? 1857, did you say they started? Yeah. So um, that means that they are, uh, they are st- that are not quite as old as Martin, obviously starting in the 1830s um but still i mean that's that's pretty impressive yeah so just carrying this on with regards to other guitars that have done loads of gigs um bruce springsteen he's uh often uh talked about telecaster or esquire which is a telly with an esquire neck and it's had loads of work done over the years but you know i mean it's a 50 year old guitar and you know, uh, you know that it is what it is it's been out and worked every every night so i can i can only imagine that it has done it has had a load of work done to it but um again this is um this was bought he bought it in 1973 and uh just looking at that setlist fm page uh that setlist fm page he um he actually did a, was 
some of his most prolific touring was around that time, 73, 74, 75. And uh, he, uh, so he retired the guitar in 2005 because he reckoned that it was, um, it was just like deteriorating beyond, beyond repair. So he, um, he, he retired it there, but he, uh, they reckon that he played 1800 shows with that. And I, I would say that um, if you've ever been to a Brings, Bruce Springsteen show, uh, they are completely bonkers and they go on for eight. So I, I've seen him and he played for three hours. Uh, it was at the Emirates, which is the Arsenal Stadium. And I really felt like I was behind enemy lines um, because it was just, you know, I, I went to the bathroom at one point and there was just all these Arsenal pictures on the, on the, on the wall. But, you know. I behave so, myself. It's fine. Good, good. No graffitiing or you didn't take a marker pen in with you or anything no, like that. No, good no, no, no. So that could have potentially done the most minutes on stage, maybe exactly. again. That was exactly yeah, that's exactly what I was getting to. So um Joe has just rocked up to the uh rocked up in the chat and he's about talking time. about that. Yeah, about time, you know, that's fine. We we said we were starting at eight, but you know, it's fine. He obviously had something more important to to be doing uh but he said he points out that the um springsteen's guitars it, sorry the the frets in springsteen's guitars are triangular um i don't really know what he means by that triangular pointing upwards or pointing downwards because they're all triangular pointing downwards sort of joe apparently he's going to come on and explain no you sorry you're banned from this you're not allowed yeah sorry yeah, no, no, sorry, sorry mate sorry you were late i'm afraid joe yeah yeah so, Go on, are you going to uh, bring him in? Yeah, I'll bring him in. Hang on. Right. Oh, he's already, he can already be in. He's just muted himself. So he needs to unmute himself and then he can come on. Um, so before he, <laughs> oh God, there he is. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. How's, uh, how's, your yes. how's your weekend been, Joe? It's been about 18 yeah. hours since we saw each other. Uh, it has. Yes, yes. No, yes. It's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, and wonderful Go on, yes. t- tell us about the springsteen guitar and then do well, one. springsteen guitar it, his guitar is really interesting because it was already super old by the time bruce springsteen even got hold of it um because he he bought it from i can't remember the name of the shop i need to look it up whilst we're talking but it but he bought it from a shop um second second hand well the shop had taken it on from a nearby studio where it had been being used as the the kind of the studio guitar and it was it had several uh several outputs and it was rooted for all these different types of pickups so it already been massively customized uh when bruce springsteen bought it and he bought it for you know not a lot of money on account of that 85 dollars yeah 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 which is which is ridiculous but the thing about the the frets they they've got a really specific name which is the name of the guy who owned the shop he developed his own type of frets that were supposed to be like a micro accurate so they were pointed so they were as in they were triangular as in rather than being sort of rounded they they went to a fine point on the end which is supposed to make them super uh, accurate you know I, I appreciate no one else has ever taken on that that sort of style of making frets so that might not be the case at all but um but bruce uh, springsteen has all of his guitars redone with that fret styling by uh by the the fellow who um who he sold the guitar he, he bought the guitar from but uh, yeah really really I, interesting guitar because it was so, already so so wrecked by the time he got it uh, so yeah, I've, I've I've just done the reading whilst you've been doing this, whilst you've been talking there, Joe, and uh, I really, it really. 
does my head in when you're right. It really, uh, it really, it, the worst, the absolute worst. <laughs> it really worst. does my head in when you're right. So you, the, the person you're talking about is Phil Pati- Patillo. Patillo? Patillo, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Patillo, and I the- guess. Patillo, I'm not sure. So he, uh, yeah, he bought it from him in, uh, don't know where it was, but that's fine. But yes, he, uh, it was his patented precision frets, which we're trying. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, really, really weird, interesting thing. But, you know, Springsteen's really taken that on and has had that fitted in all of his guitars and his Fender custom shops that he's had made since then, modelled after his Esquire. Um, Okay. But yeah, yeah, really interesting. Uh, It's it's an Esquire. Um, yeah well well but yeah the the next guy neck so you know yeah so in terms of the routing joe you mentioned that it's it's rooted in a kind of weird way do you know what are the actual details on that so um i i don't know the the specifics i know that the guitar had to have an awful lot of work when it was taken into the shop in the first place just because as i said it, it was designed as a studio guitar and i think the the idea that the studio had come up with is they had a couple of it, it was maybe 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 three or four outputs on the guitar all directly wired to different pickups so the whole the whole inside of the telly had been um sort of swimming pool rooted and then had several pickups fit and the idea that the studio has was you could lay down a single guitar part and have it recorded you know four different ways through four different pickup types uh, just right. with one with one single take in order to you know prevent constant you know to more to more and more takes and stuff so yeah it was a it was a really it was a really weird weird idea and kind of such a frankenstein of a guitar even before springsteen got it so even before it became like one of the most gig guitars of all time it was already it had already had such a hard life and had been through you know so many different iterations and there's, so there's a really good article on it on rolling stone uh, about it and yeah joe you're completely right again that the guitar were had f- it was four pickups wired into extra jacks so what this article says is there was four pickups wired into extra jacks that would each plug into a separate channel on the recording console uh so that the pl- the session player could collect four times union scale for playing four slightly different versions of the same guitar solo so i guess yeah. it meant that they were getting paid four times for playing <laughs> yeah, yeah um sure. so that's that's pretty funny that's that's i mean that is like if i've in, if i've understood that correctly that is the most bruce springsteen thing i could ever imagine basically just like you know yeah this one's this guitar's for the working man like you know i'm getting paid four times for playing one solo <laughs> that's amazing yeah. absolutely yeah. amazing i don't think you get away with that these days yeah but oh, the uh, so. the 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 shop that he bought it from Patillo's store in New Jersey is still there and he does still do that um uh, he'll do a refretting with his uh, precision frets for anyone who takes their guitar in as well which is really interesting that's amazing Pat- patello died in 2010 so he's not doing it but maybe they are continuing on the uh continuing on the tradition sure. yeah yeah i guess so <laughs> ghost threats that's the real meaning of ghost threat <laughs> yeah there we go um joe branson do you want to stay on the line oh, sure yeah why joe um jay what else is on that list that we've not already talked about uh so other things that are in the list are uh bonnie Raitt's uh 65 strat okay. uh so brownie is the name of that guitar uh and I've, I've never got on with naming guitars all of these all of these guitars have got names but then i guess you know i've never owned a guitar for more than sort of 
five years or so. Did, so did maybe I don't have, have a name for his. No, I Does don't think so. Does have a name for his? No, no, no. I, don't think, I so. don't think so. No, I don't think so. Um, so uh, Bonnie Raitt's uh, Bonnie Raitt's Strat is a sixty-five that she bought in nineteen sixty-nine, and uh, again, I, I could only get a show list from setless setlist.fm, who definitely are not sponsoring this podcast. By the way, <laughs> I just I think it's a very useful resource, uh, and they have got a thousand or so gigs listed between nineteen sixty-nine and 2019 and uh yeah apparently she still uses the same one so that's really cool yeah i'm just trying to think of other people like famous guitar players that have done a lot of gigs and i was thinking like oh maybe chuck berry but i'm just looking at some photos now and he's used loads and loads of different hollow bodies okay Um, whether they be you know like uh, there's uh, quite a lot of pictures with him with kind of modern ones uh he also used a es350t which is the one i think that's just been reissued um but yeah he's got like you know, it looks like he's kind of played some like seventies ones as well. So probably not him. How about um BB King with the uh, Lucille? Was Lucille, there like, yeah. Was there one Lucille? No, there were oh, there are loads and loads of Lucilles. There are there are thousands of Lucilles. He, he, it's it's not one guitar. He plays. He just plays loads of the same. Uh, made by Gibson. I mean, the thing the thing about the Lucille is, and I'm I'm sure I've got this right. Is basically he was. His uh, ha- his house was burning down. He woke up in the middle of the night and his house was burning down or something like that. And he left his guitar to burn because he went and like went, he went to like get his wife or get like save someone in the house. And that person was called Lucille. So the next time he bought a guitar, he bought the same guitar that he'd had before, like, you know, a, a, a three three five or a three five five or whatever it was and he called it lucille because he had like saved lucille rather than saving his guitar i'm sure i did yeah. is, am i making that up no it, it, the story is something like that i couldn't tell you if that you got that exactly on uh hang on well let's have a look at the uh the wikipedia um uh oh no it wasn't his house it was a dance hall in arkansas the hall okay. was heated by a barrel half filled with Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burning kerosene set in the middle of the dance floor, a fairly common, practice, fairly common practice at the time. During a performance, two men began to fight, knocking over the barrel and sending the burning fuel across the floor. The hall burst into flames and was evacuated. Once outside, however, King realized that he'd left his guitar inside, so he went back into the burning building to retrieve his beloved $30 Gibson guitar. King learned the next day that two men who started the fire, fire had been fighting over a woman who worked at the hall named Lucille. King did not know Lucille, but named the guitar after every guitar and every guitar he subsequently owned. Lucille, as a reminder, never again to do something as so stupid as to run into a burning building or fight over a woman. <laughs> there we go. Oh, so that's, that's, cool. the, that's the story. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, well, you know, actually, I think my version of that was a bit more romantic, so I might continue well, sure. remembering my version. Um, really interestingly, Gibson have been doing a uh, signature model of that BB King Lucille model since 1980. Really? Yeah, which seems like a long time ago. Yeah, what? Uh, yeah, what? Well, it was. It, it, it was. You know, four sure. Years. But that's but what that's even before... other signature models do Gibson have in their sort of standard? Well, the the thing with Gibson is that they've all pretty much always done signature models. Um, Joe, can I can I uh, can I introduce you to a guitar called the Les Paul? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, but that. even before that, you know, there's things like the Trini Lopez and and stuff like that, which are, that was you know, the other thing that I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gibson have always had signature models in the line, but I think the, if I'm not uh, mistaken, 1980 is well before any of the Fender signature models. Um, you know, the Clapton and the uh, Malmsteen, I think, didn't come out till I want to say like mid to late 80s i can't remember the exact year now uh i I think you're right in fact i think we did a uh i think we did a a podcast on it not too long ago didn't because didn't the clapton the malmsteen and the srv come out in the same year i feel definitely definitely the clapton and the malmsteen did they came out in 1988 okay wow 88 okay well yeah yeah so um yeah that's pretty impressive 1980 for the lucille um so when was the trini lopez i feel like that was pretty early i had it in my head that that may be you know obviously other than the les paul was was one of the first i mean he trini uh maybe not no trini lopez 1967 that's when that guitar was released i believe so yeah let me just that is that is very early in terms of kind of signature guitars then um, well, again, you say that, but I think, you know, uh, let's have a look. Can, I mean, you're just listening. If you're listening to this, you're listening to men Googling, but, um, this is kind of well, what I, I mean, you know, it's basically the gear slum, isn't it? At that point. Well, yeah, sure. Uh, let's have a look. Um, earliest signature guitars. Uh, whilst you're looking up that, I, I will just, uh, yeah, complete... go, back, go back to your list. I'll go back to, go back to my list. So another guitar that was mentioned as to guitars that uh, maybe have done m- more gigs than Francis Ross's telly, uh, it, it was Keith Richards' telly. I was so, about to ask uh, about Richards. that, whether or not that would be the next yes. one, the Micawber, whether or not you'd discuss that yet. Yes. So, oh, so Joe, you probably missed us talking about um, the, the benchmark was very much set with Francis Ross's telly uh, right, because sure. – I, I reckon that he's played three and a half thousand gigs with that guitar. Right. right. Um, so, so getting close to that is quite difficult, but uh, Keith Richards telly, Keith Richard got the guitar in uh, 1971 and it was a gift. Yeah. <clears throat> the article that I saw said 1971, oh, but okay. that's fine. Yeah, Early seventies. Yeah. Uh, and it was a gift from Eric Clapton. 
who appears to have given loads of people loads of guitars. So it was uh, um, it was it was for uh, Keith Richards' twenty seventh birthday, and it was just when um, the Rolling Stones were recording "Exile on Main Street," which is the album that they they made after. Uh, after they left the UK because of for tax reasons, they moved to France and they very much felt like um, they'd been forced out of the UK. And Exile on, on Main Street for for me was my favourite Rolling Stones record because it was um, it, it was a point for them where they weren't trying to make anything necessarily poppy and it was very the album was obviously very sort of drug and booze fueled and it was recorded in Mick Jagger's house in France where they just flew sort of musicians in and out and that was the first time that um, Richards would have used Macorber but of course at that point in time when he recorded it he hadn't even fit the um, the path humbucker um, he would have he he used that in its original state just as a as a telecaster and of course you know probably with six strings on it as well because he didn't really develop that open a tuning until after exile on mainstream really i i didn't realize it was like a m- more recent thing i just assumed they he'd sort of always been doing that yeah yeah the uh but he, he even there are there are even early uh uh videos and photos of him playing macorba before it had any of its customization so he also kind of gigged it a little bit before before he started messing around with it so okay. guys Going back to the um, signature models, earliest signature models, just this is um, taken from guitar.com um, and they're uh, a really good article. You should check out the history of signature guitars. They seem to think that the first one, the first thing that you'd kind of uh, describe as a signature model uh, was a 1913 Martin uh, for a guy called Varda Olcott Bickford, um, who was a Hollywood-based guitar teacher. Uh, and basically with the idea being that when someone came, went to him and said, what should I buy? He had an endorsed guitar made by martin um the first gibson seems to be the nick lucas flat top model 1927 which i believe they now still do a model uh, like a version of Um, okay pretty sure there's a gibson nick lucas still available i'll i will just confirm that but i think there is um Um, i tell you what that's it's really funny that so that martin came out in the 30s i mean martin had been Martin were already a company. They've been a company for a hundred years. They've been making yeah. guitars for one hundred years before someone came up with the idea of sticking someone else's name on it as a way to do some marketing. You know, I mean, it's, it's uh, that's really, really bonkers to think about. So the Nick Lucas is not a current model, but uh, there has been one in the last few years. What is it? Sorry, it's just a. Um... It's just a like a small bodied acoustic. It's kind of like um, a not parlor quite, or something. It's not quite a parlor, but it's like a small shape. Yeah, couldn't tell you, uh, um, but it's cool. Great looking guitar, like really nice inlays, and it's got that. Um, you know, they do the fire stripe pick guard, which is the kind of like thick, almost looks like kind of tortoise shell, but it's not. It's that kind of striped effect. Okay. Love it. Yeah, really good. And um, what else is on your uh, your list? Going back to the topic. Well, yeah, so just finishing off on Keith Richards, uh, they reckon that this guitar probably, um, yeah, so he probably, he's, he's been playing it since 71. I think he's still playing it. Um, I mean, in between 71 or 72, whenever it was, and 2019, that uh, Rolling Stones, again, according to Setlist FF, and played 1,100 shows, um, which actually doesn't sound as many as I would have thought they would have played but then again i guess when you get to being the size of the rolling stones there really aren't that many venues you can play in the world because 
you're just too popular. I mean, you know, you're not going to go on a tour of the UK, are you? You'll probably play, you might play one or two shows a year. Really. That's what would be really, it'd be really interesting to get an accurate figure on Dave Peacock because, yeah. you know, they were probably still doing, you know, five or six gigs a week, even a few years ago, you know, a couple oh, of years yeah, ago. Def- definitely. Whereas, like you say, the Stones would have slowed down significantly in the amount of gigs they were doing. I mean, you know, without wanting to make, actually, I say without wanting to make this a Chaz and Dave podcast, absolutely wanted to make this Chaz and Dave nerds. Um, in in the time in between Chaz and Dave breaking up and then starting the band again, Chaz was still off gigging, playing Chaz and Dave songs. He he played a Fender Christmas party at one point. Like, yeah, just, you could just give him a bell and just be like, oh, do you want to come and play, mate? And he'd be like, yeah, of course, mate. Of course, son. I'll be there. You know, like I just I, re- I remember in a time when Chaz and Dave kind of weren't cool in the way that they are now. Whereas you know, you know, now there's people like in their thirties like us getting back into it and going, "Oh, this music's actually really good." But I remember they when I was maybe eighteen, they played at like the local pub in my parents' yeah. village, and it was like maybe a tenner to get in, and I, I don't think it was sold out. You could just sort of potter up there and pay a tenner and go and watch them. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, I mean, it's, and he would have probably would have been using that bass, and you just think that's yeah, that's it, not of gigs. That's it, that's the thing. So, but yeah, that's that's sort of my list is um as as sort of evaporated. Um, I I that's that's the end. I, I can't think of anyone else. So in terms of other bands and other people who maybe had done um similar sort of gigs, similar sort of numbers of gigs, uh. Uh, Brian May and his Red Special was mentioned a number of times, uh, but as far as I can tell, he retired the guitar, like full time retired it. I think in in like the early nineties, right. um, and has been using various copies of it. But and again, I think I think this is down to the fact that he couldn't get it insured because nobody wanted to touch it because it was it was too valuable. Because obviously, what do, you re- oh, what do you reckon that guitar would go for? I mean, at an auction now. Who who knows? Who knows? You know that guitar that he made. So him. So everyone knows the story about it. But I'll just I'll just say it anyway. Uh, him and his dad made the guitar in the sixties uh, when he was a teenager. It was made out of a fireplace, so it weighs an absolute ton. It's like it's, it's oak, um, isn't it? Like, it's oak. I'm sure it is oak. Yeah, and uh, and he, you know, so it weighs an absolute ton. And um, it's been played on basically every major Queen song of of the last 50 years or so. Um, How much is it worth? I've got no idea. I've got no idea how you put a value on that sort of thing. I mean, a million quid? Well, I'm not even sure about that because it's like, you know, it's... I guess guitars have gone for more than that. You know, we saw the stuff at the Dave Gilmore auction and, you know, we've had the kind of Gary Moore, Peter Green, Les Paul. But this, there is literally only one of these, you know, in terms of uh, the guitar. I mean, there's loads of other like really good, you know, 58, 59, 60 Les Pauls. uh, And there's loads of really other good strats. But like, this is the one. And it was made by the guy that made the guitar yeah. famous. Like I don't yeah, really yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you think it was played on like, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody and all of that, you know, it's it qualifies for the same things that you know, similarly to the um Dave Gilmore guitars. Um, but it's got all the extra stuff about it that like Brian May actually made it. So yeah. I mean I just 
I just don't know. I don't know. I think that could be the most expensive guitar of all time if it was sold. So uh, the only thing that I when you put it like that, in terms of, you know, it being made by the person who played it, this, that and the other, I think the only thing that could probably come close is the log. Yep. But then that that doesn't have the same, for me, that doesn't have the same uh, kind of mass appeal that something like the Brian May guitar has. Yeah, Um, no, of course, because it's, it's a log. You know, yeah, it's that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a log with six strings and a weird tremolo put on it. Whereas the red special is just this. It's just so iconic. Like nothing. It really is so iconic. You know, all of the um, all of the the uh, the, the replicas that we we used to sell them at Gak, and they were so popular. And actually, I was I was doing a little bit of reading about that guitar earlier today. And uh, apparently the first mass-produced replica of the Red Special was uh, made by Greco, and um, it was completely unlicensed. And in what can only be described as a, a, a move of just absolute um, like power play, they sent him one. <laughs> <laughs> they sent him one, and he went, oh, crikey, this is good, isn't it? And he started playing it. So he used that for a while. Um, I did not know. That. I knew that Guild had done a uh, version of it for a while, um, and there's been another couple before they got round to doing the kind of Brian May guitars that we know today. But yeah, I didn't know about the Greco. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's completely bonkers. I thought Burns um, did them for a while. Did Burns not do the Red Specials for a bit? Yeah, yeah. Well, they were. Uh, yeah, they were Burns. They were Burns, Brian May, and then they were just Brian May. Um, but. Uh, yeah, like I said, that, that Greco story is is fantastic. Um, just from the chat, Blim is saying, how about Steve Harris's P-Base or Buddy Guy's Polka Dot Strat? Um, Jay, did those come up in your research at all? I didn't. Um, so uh, speaking of Steve Harris, I'm not sure how... I, I, when did he get that... Um... That West I think Ham he logo plays one. quite a few different bases, doesn't he? he I, don't, I don't think he uh, sticks to just the one. He's obviously got that West Ham one, but he had his. Um, he he was playing just a plain white one for a while. He also got um, uh, Entwistle uh, gave him one of the. Um, uh, it's, it's a normal P base, but it's uh, like a fifty-one cut, so it's no contours. Um, he had one of those for a bit as well. So I think he's he's moved, you know, between a few different uh, bases. Yeah, I don't really know In enough about of- it because just looking at just a quick Google image search, he does seem to just play two bases and they are, I mean, either they're the base that his uh, signature models have been based on or they're his signature models. It looks like the blue sparkly one. Uh, is the one that he was playing back in the day with the mirror plate on it. Um, when you say back in the day, how early are you talking? Well, I'm looking at pictures that are clearly from like, you know, the first few albums that it's looking like, oh, wow, you know, okay. they're playing like pretty grotty venues by the looks of things. Um, so I think he's played the blue sparkle one for a while, but yeah, now any recent picture, he seems to be playing the signature model, which is that top bound P bass with the West Ham logo. But I mean, there's others, there's one here where he's playing like a red P bass. So I think, yeah, he, he, they've obviously done a lot of gigs, but I don't think he's stuck with one bass long enough to beat any of the other ones that we've talked about. Um, in terms of while we're talking about bass players, uh, one that I did think about and I have not been able to find any information on how many gigs he played is Herbie Flowers. 
Yeah. So Herbie Flowers has what is assumed to be the first ever jazz bass. Um, so it, he's got, a, it's a 1960, obviously. Um, and uh, like, if it was the first. 1959. Yeah, 59. Yeah, 59 jazz bass. Yeah. It, which he bought in 1960, I think. Can't remember the history. I'm just looking at it. Some, uh, I can't remember. But like he reckoned it was a, he reckons it's the first one, or maybe I've read that somewhere else. I can't yeah, remember. Possibly. But I'm sure... one, of the, one of the other, the first jazz basses that kicked around was uh, owned uh, by Dave Gilmore. He had uh, a 59 stack pot concentric sunburst um very lovely jazz bass which um guy pratt uh pink floyd bassist had had uh, been trying to buy off of him ever since he joined the band and uh, and uh, guy pratt uh, ended up marrying dave gilmore's daughter and on their wedding day when they got back to the house uh, dave gilmore had left the uh, bass at his front door <laughs> just outside <laughs> Well, I don't, you know, I don't know the details, but but that's the, he'd been trying to buy it off of him for years, and and Dave Gilmore was always like, no, no, it's you can't because it's you know it's a prototype, it's one of the first, it's very important. Um, Blim Blim has raised a good point in the chat. Sting with his P base. Um, I've just done a quick Google image search, and it does seem that apart from a couple of instances where he's playing a Spectre, um, his when he's playing a four string bass, he's usually playing that the. Um, the really old school P bass that he's got. There's a couple 50, of, it's a 51, isn't 51, it? Yeah. There's a couple of pictures where he's playing a kind of regular P bass, but not many. So that might I be think it's a 51. Game. I thought it was a 51. Oh no, um, 57. It's, it's got contours. 57. So it's, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's close right. to the contours. Oh, okay. Not 57, yeah, yeah. mate, 54. 57 would be when they 50. started doing split coil pickups in it. It so has to be pre. 57 is when it became the real P base, yeah. Right, okay. Maybe it is, maybe you're right, 54. Maybe I'm just seeing one labelled as a 57 here. But yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe. that was certainly the transition year. So maybe he got one right on the cusp. Certainly his one had the white plate, which didn't come, didn't come out until post 55. And then all the contours, which, you know, then moved over onto the the split call yeah um, yeah um, the other well. base the the reason that i bring it up not only because i think he might be a candidate for that but i've just seen a picture of him playing joe branton's absolute dream base get this right uh hamer obviously great um explorer body great eight string great fretless yeah yeah, I'm in. I'm I'm totally in. Sting's got a great taste in basses. I mean, you know, that that old, you know, 50, 50 something, it just looks think better and 50, better the I more. I think it's a 54 now that I think about it. It's certainly, right. his his is certainly, it would have been, it would have to be 54, 55, because uh, even in 54, it was still just a black guard. They moved to a white guard around 55. But um, but yeah, it's it's it looks great. And it just seems to get more and more wrecked you know as he's sort of kept it you know he's kept playing it it just it's such a such a cool looking uh such a cool looking bass but you you know you're right he has a great taste in other basses as well like those um uh those specter euros oh they're they're absolutely fantastic uh looking um, the and best, sounding the, basses as well the best thing about his p bass is that he's been using it on the sting and shaggy tour this year <laughs> um, so I thought whenever I saw him doing that, he was playing an SG because he was playing guitar for that. 
Uh, it looks like he's been doing been playing bass, definitely on the Tiny Desk concert that I mentioned uh, right, right. on the podcast a, a couple of months ago. He was playing bass on that, but I think yeah, on the like the music videos and stuff, he's been playing guitar. Very cool, very cool. Just, to, just I to found jump a, found an it. image of him uh, of him playing a, a Steinberger as well. So you know, he's just going up and up in my estimations. Just to, just to jump back a minute, that. I mean, according to the Fender website, the first jazz bass was March 1960. So, oh, fair enough. Yeah. I, so I, yeah, but yeah. So I'm I'm not sure. Maybe 59 was a uh, was a um. Certainly, prototypes would have been coming yeah. out around then. I think. But um. But yeah. So yeah. Herb, Herbie Flowers, I have in my head as someone who's had. He's got like a really early 1960 jazz bass, and he still plays it um and so like for uh people who don't know who we're talking about herbie flowers was a um session musician throughout the 60s probably his most iconic bass line is um he played bass on take a walk for, take a walk on the wild uh, uh, take a walk on the wild side um the lou reed song and it's that really iconic just like and it's just such a good bass line it's absolutely fantastic um and i'd really like to see him play he's another one like Chaz and dave who just sort of goes out and just does it you know he played he played in Rottingdean, which is a little village just outside of brighton um just earlier this year and i, I really wanted to go but i couldn't make it that so, bass might be a contender for the most gigs so he bought it in, so. bought it in 1965 i believe and it is a 1960 yeah um and uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. How would you find out how many gigs he's done? You know, that's... I mean, uh, I just... I don't know if you can, you know. I'm just going to Google Herbie Flowers amounts of gigs. Well, let's see what happens. Uh, no, not Herbivore, Herbivore Flowers. Herbie Flowers amount of gigs. This is someone Googling live on a podcast. Um, I can't tell you there's no uh there's no information unfortunately um but i reckon that could be a candidate for it absolutely um so uh another couple of options uh, another couple of ideas that i've just had um and i don't know i, I don't know how many gigs i would have played but um lindsey buckingham and his weird signature guitar have you seen that yeah i doubt that though because he wasn't using that when they were doing loads of gigs was Really? Yeah. So that guitar is from that guitar is he got it in nineteen seventy nine. So I guess that's post rumors. When was that? Seventy five? Seventy seven? Something like that, yeah. Uh that I think is oh, okay, uh Fleetwood Mac. Uh that is seventy seven. So okay, so he would have done that. Um and another one, not a uh not someone who would have done the most uh the most gigs but what about carol k in terms of most songs yeah yeah definitely that could i don't know what her what she was using but she you she i mean uh, carol k part of the wrecking crew right yes she was part of the wrecking crew with um oh gosh uh the drummer whose name has totally slipped out of my head uh how uh, blaine how blaine Definitely not on the same guitar, though, because if you look, uh, she has used loads of different stuff. She, right, okay. I believe she was using Ibanez SRXs uh, oh towards the end of her career. So, uh, yeah. 
the only other thing that I could think to do, um, which is something that I did earlier this week, is have a look at uh, on the Wikipedia page for list of best selling artists and be like, okay, well, look, who sold loads of loads of records? Who's been playing like loads of shows? Because I think that's probably a decent way to look at um, you know look at people who've been playing uh, a large number of gigs and obviously right up the top there um after or you know maybe alongside elvis is the beatles and this is one for you really mark what what what's maca been doing all these years uh just using a variety of stuff uh he's still never one guitar uh, well, actually, so there's a the bit of a story behind the violin bass because the violin bass, the original violin bass, got stolen, um, and obviously he would have done a fair amount of gigs on the original one, and then it got stolen. Uh, I believe in the like mid '60s, something like that. Um, so there was another one. He's obviously used Rickenbackers a lot. He's used Wow for a significant, really? significant okay. portion of the kind of late '80s, early '90s, I believe. Um, but it, it's so weird with him, you know, because in the studio he's like using loads of stuff and even i think on gigs he plays a bit of guitar and he plays piano and stuff like that so i don't think there's kind of one instrument that he would have used a lot for every gig if that makes sense okay and then another one whilst we're whilst we're talking about uh your um specialist subject um bobby d what was he what's what you know what was his deal absolutely everything and anything um, no no one iconic guitar or anything don't think really cares about it i mean he does have iconic guitars but not that have done loads of gigs um okay. you know he's used strats tellies uh he's used loads of different martins so yeah nothing that would have done a ton of gigs and um, definitely not in you know the recent years because he doesn't really play guitar anymore kind of plays piano guitar bob raises a good point johnny greenwood's telly plus because isn't that the only guitar that he plays I think it is. I think oh, he plays. A, a, a... He plays a few. He's got. Uh, he has three Tele Pluses. But you think he's he's alternating between um, that and an old uh, Fender. What was the uh, what's the name of the hollow body Fender? Not the Coronado. Starcaster. The other one. Starcaster. So he has a Starcaster that he plays uh, quite a bit as well. But um, uh, yeah, he's got, he's got three. They would have been played. He probably switches between them during shows, right? Teddy Pluses, he certainly does, and of course, the original Teddy Plus got nicked anyway. So he, uh, um, oh, okay. and, you know, that 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 would have been the first sort of handful handful of records, at least. Right. Okay. To um to wrap this one up because we've kind of approaching time. Blims raised a good point in the chat, saying the correct answer is going to be someone who none of us have ever heard of, who's been playing the same no caster every night in Nashville since 1950. And I think, yeah, I mean. That yeah. is absolutely the correct answer to this is we will never know. It would be someone yeah, yeah, of doing, doing session gigs or, you know, doing, uh, you know, covers gigs or something like that. Probably absolutely amazing, but someone who we will never, ever know their name. With that, I think um, it's time to wrap up this live episode. If you've joined us listening tonight, um, thank you very much. If you've joined in the chat, even better. You've helped us get through another hour of podcasting this week in the uh, run-up to the Marathon Gear of the Year podcasts that we're recording next weekend and releasing next week. So, Or when you hear this, if you're hearing this recorded, it will be we're recording tomorrow and Sunday, and then it will be live on Monday. So... Yeah, thanks for everyone who's helped out in the chat and uh, give us inspiration and some some suggestions. Um, Jay Cross, thanks for joining us. It's quite all right. Just before we go, can I just bring up? Sorry, I know that you've just done oh, a really just good done a outro. Wrap up. I know on. it was really good, but uh, there was there's one other thing that's just come to mind um, after uh, after I watched this documentary on country music last week, and um, Marty Stewart 
uh, who was in Johnny Cash's band back in the day. He um, has he's played. Uh, he's a you know session guitar player and everything. But he uh, spent a long time playing mandolin, and he played mandolin for Johnny Cash. And his mandolin is extremely iconic because um, there is a, there's a really funny story that he tells about how he had been playing this mandolin for about 15 years and he had kept it absolutely pristine and he was so proud of this mandolin. And then one night after a gig, he found Johnny Cash with a knife carving his initials into the uh into the mandal into the front of the mandolin so johnny so if you uh if you see a picture of marty stewart's mandolin it's got jrc um etched into the front of it and ever since then he's just gone like well i guess that's it now isn't it so he has got other people anytime he's played with someone famous he's got other people to etch their name into the front of his mandolin so this is some sort of 60s uh 60s model i think um so i would say that's probably up there but of course matt that's a mandolin and mandolins are not as cool as electric guitars and they're certainly not as cool as precision basses so i guess that probably discounts it from this conversation anyway so as with every Tunners podcast, the ultimate winner is Chas and Dave. Um, Jay, thanks for joining us. Joe Branton, thanks for taking some time out of your evening to join us as well. E. E, indeed. And uh, the next time we speak to you all, it will be gear of the year. So uh, <sighs> that'll be fun. It'll be long, but it'll be fun. Thanks for joining. Bye-bye. Peace, gang. Farewell. Anyone who's uh, listening live, thanks very much for uh, joining us in the chat. Thanks for giving us ideas and stuff. And uh, yeah, great fun. We'll be doing some more Guitar Nerds live next year. We're going to try and scale things up a bit with regards to like uh, Patreon and doing more stuff for you if you've signed up for Patreon. Um, Yeah, we've got Gear of the Decade coming up and we've got some other ideas about how we can give you even more value for money than you already get. So uh, yeah, thanks very much. And let's... Go on, Jay. You sound like you want to say something. I was just going to... Joe, that picture of Sting, when's that from? I don't know. It looks pretty early. It does look early because the thing that I find really funny about that is... Um, the you see that strap. strap. <laughs> yeah. strap that's still in the catalogue. That's, <laughs> that's one of the biggest... That's one of the biggest selling products. That's been in the catalogue since about 1959. And uh, and it's it's still going strong. It's really that's, funny. That's got to be your longest unbroken product run, right? So it, it might <laughs> yeah. not it might not be fifties, but it's it's really early. It's yeah, really yeah. really early. So yeah, it's really funny. Right. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. And uh, yeah, we'll see you at Gear of the Year. Peace and love. Peace and love. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.